Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for January 20th, 2020. I'm very pleased to bring you guys another interview this week. Uh, joining me in a few moments here by phone uh, will be a semi-regular guest, actually, Alex Thurston, who's a professor of political science uh, at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Alex focuses on Islamism uh, and extremist violence uh, in the Sahel in West Africa. Uh, he will be been on the program if you go through the archives he's been here to talk about Boko Haram he's been here uh, to talk about Mali uh, he joined us uh, he just uh, I think was my first interview actually after coming to Substack uh, to sort of talk about how things were uh, going in the region uh, with uh, the growth of the Islamic State in Niger and the merging of uh, Al-Qaeda groups in Mali. Uh, so he's been on a number of times to, to talk about this stuff. He's got a new piece uh, at World Politics Review. Uh, that's called A Presidential Rift Sours Mauritania's Political Transition. I'll put a link to that in the show description. Uh, I read it and thought to myself, you know, I really don't know my, almost anything about Mauritania, uh, and I would like to, so I thought, why not have Alex on? And maybe there are some other people out there who don't know very much uh, about Mauritania, and uh, Alex can help us all uh, get a little better grounding in the country and, and uh, you know, kind of jumpstart our knowledge there. Uh, so we're going to talk about Mauritania, basically. This is like Mauritania 101, I think, for, for many of us, me included. Um, First, we're going to start with uh, a couple of things, a couple of questions about last week's uh, G5 Sahel Summit in France. Uh, that'll kind of get us into talking about Mauritania. Uh, if you read the uh, newsletter in the last, you know, last week, you'll know that uh, Emmanuel Macron summoned the leaders of the G5 Sahel countries. That's Burkina Faso, uh, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger summoned them to France to sort of account for their sins uh, in allowing people in their countries uh, to criticize France and its benevolent uh, military assistance to the region. And it, it all smacked very much of colonialism. And I, I'm wondering, uh, I'd like to get Alex's take on uh, how he thinks that sort of thing uh, affects the fight, let's say, against extremism in West Africa in the Sahel. Uh, so uh, he'll be joining us in a moment here and uh, we'll get the interview started. Okay, I have on the phone here Alex Thurston, uh, repeat repeat guest several times now. Uh, he's assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati. He studies Islam and politics uh, in the Sahel uh, and he's going to talk to us. He's got a new piece uh, at World Politics Review. Uh, it's called A Presidential Rift Sours Mauritania's Political Transition. He's going to talk to us about the rift, but first he's going to help us understand a little bit more about Mauritania, uh, generally speaking. Uh, so, Alex, thank you for uh, for being here and for walking us through this stuff. Thanks a lot for having me back. Yeah, glad to be here. 
So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, which will kind of transition us into Mauritania, uh, and I want to let everybody know uh, that we're recording this on January seventeenth, and I'm I'm gonna put the podcast out a few days from now. So if like the sun, you know, blots out the world or something in the meantime, I'm still gonna release the podcast. But if there's some world altering disaster, just know that we didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so. Uh, this just this past week, as we're sitting here on Friday on the seventeenth, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron sort of summoned the leaders of the G five countries, and the G five, the Sahel countries, are uh, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. Uh, summoned them all to France, uh, m- mostly it seems because he was miffed that there are people in those countries that have been criticizing France. How dare they! Uh, criticizing France and its military operation, Operation Barhai, uh, in West Africa to, to, you know, kind of help those countries deal with Islamist violence. Uh, I wanted to get your take on what that meeting was about and what the outcome uh, meant. It doesn't really seem like much changed. Macron agreed to send a couple hundred more soldiers to the region, uh, but mostly it was like he was threatening to end the operation altogether, uh, and he he was appeased enough, I guess, or his ego was assuaged enough not to do that. But tell us about what, what happened from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, first off, you know, I, I definitely agree with, with the way that you frame things. I mean, you know, the, the word summoned has been used a lot to describe this. I mean, it, it really looked you know, I think the the optics of it definitely looked as though Macron was um, compelling these leaders to to come to France and make a public declaration that they want, you know, the French military presence in their countries to, to continue. And I think that his sort of, you know, threats or, or talk about a possible withdrawal, I, I don't think that, you know, that's something that he would have really followed through on. You know, I don't think that's something that um, he would be prepared to do or, or that those leaders would want. Um, but yeah, he does seem to be really bothered by some of this, you know, anti-French sentiment in the region, which has not come from the top leaders. It hasn't come from heads of state. I mean, occasionally you've had, you know, cabinet ministers or, or you know, other figures, you know, senior figures in, in these countries expressing skepticism about France's motives. But from, you know, for the most part, um, this has been street protests. And so, you know, it, it really seemed that he wanted these leaders to, to disavow, you know, any sympathy for, for the protesters. Are the street protests, I mean, it's like, this this region was a French colony until not that long ago. So imagine the nerve of these people to still have some resentment against uh, their their former colonizer. But is this were these protests sort of just uh, an expression of a general kind of lingering resentment toward France, or is there uh, have there been specific um, issues related to the the campaign against Islamists that people are unhappy about, or both? I mean, I think that, you know, the, the background of, of French colonialism until, you know, 1960 and, and, you know, virtually all of these countries, I mean, that's essential, right? And definitely there have been people, you know, all throughout the post-colonial history who have objected strenuously to what they see as, as you know, French neocolonialism in, in multiple spheres. But I think that, 
the causes, sort of the immediate causes of these protests are, are much more recent because, you know, when France came into Mali, northern Mali, in January 2013, there was widespread reporting that a lot of Malians welcomed them, that they felt like, you know, during the rebellion of, of 2012 and then the jihadist occupation of a lot of northern Mali that year, that the country had really been, you know, torn apart and, and placed into severe crisis. And so France was, was welcomed, I think, by a lot of people. But I think that since then, you know, a lot of ordinary people and, and even a lot of, you know, uh, policymakers and intellectuals and, and elites, I would say, have been really bothered and perplexed by the, the persistence of the crisis. And I think that it's given rise to, in some quarters, very legitimate questioning about what France is doing, and then in other quarters, more sort of conspiratorial thinking. But I think, at any rate, a lot of people ask the basic question, you know, why can this, you know, major European military power not end this crisis, right? And there are a lot of different answers to that, but I think, you know, as people try to answer that question, some of them feel, some of them come to the conclusion that France is doing more harm than good. And some come to the conspiratorial conclusion that, that France wants the insecurity to continue. This actually leads me to one more question on, on the, the meeting here that, um, you know, I mean, I've seen it suggested uh, in some places that, uh, what the French, what French assistance in the region really does uh, is I- instead of, you know, sort of helping these countries to deal with uh, Islamist groups that are threatening them, it actually uh, entrenches and sort of reinforces some unpopular existing systems, governments, for example, uh, repressive governments, uh, that are the the you know fuel that feeds these movements. Um, you know, and, and uh, I guess you know Chad is a good example of this. There's a, you know this sort of uh, very authoritarian government that the French government has defended against. You know, helped to defend against rebel groups and uh, and yeah. opposition over and over again. And and the the idea is you know it sort of misunderstands, in a sense, what the grievances are uh, that fuel groups like JNIM in Mali or, or uh, even, you know, Islamic State in the... I, they're West Africa now, I guess, not Greater Sahara anymore. But, uh, you know, what what fuels these, these groups are more kind of local uh, issues, but they're tre- they get treated as these uh, expressions of an international jihadist movement and and you know what what France does in coming in and sort of uh, propping up the local issues actually makes the problem worse. Where where do you what's your take on on something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, as you said with Chad, you know, there's there's French support for for repressive and authoritarian regime, and then I think you know in in Mali or in Burkina Faso, I think the regimes are, are you know the administrations, governments, whatever term one wants to use, are are not as repressive and authoritarian, but I think that they're often quite aloof from the needs and concerns of their populations, you know, and the criticism of the president of Mali or or others has been that they're just much more oriented toward what Paris thinks than what rural Malians think or care about. So this is sort of one problem. Another problem is that, you know, France has sometimes, particularly in in what's called the Menaka region of, of Mali, partnered with 
movements have sometimes partnered with local militias that have agendas beyond counterterrorism. You know, so in particular, two of the militias that France has worked with in in the Menaka region of Mali um, have been widely accused of of uh, using the cover of counterterrorism to pursue, you know, basically agendas related to interethnic conflict, um, which then can in turn create more recruits for for jihadist movements as the jihadists try to position themselves as the defenders of those communities. Then I think there's been another problem, which is, you know, France's um, explicit insistence that there can be no dialogue between Sahelian governments and jihadist movements, um, even though, particularly in Mali, there's been a lot of calls from different segments of the Malian political class and from civil society for that kind of dialogue to occur. Um, one criticism of the, you know, uh, statements and so forth coming out of the, the summit in France on, on the 13th was that there really wasn't much of a political solution that anybody was envisioning. And I think part of that is because, you know, France's attitude towards some of these questions about talks with jihadists or other issues kind of narrows the space for political solutions to the point where they're just sort of stuck doing more of the same. I think ultimately France seems to have you know, basically a mentality, not quite of body counts, but basically like if we get this list of bad guys, if we kill this list of bad guys, then this crisis will, will end. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that's the right diagnosis of the problem at all. So they've really sort of gotten stuck, I think. So to transition then into our main topic, I mean, the, the Mauritania is part of the G5. In fact, I think the, G, the G5 solid forces headquartered in Mauritania, I think. Is, is that right? They, I mean, they have different sort of, you know, bases. I mean, the, the main, you know, they had, a, they had a headquarters in central Mali, and then that was attacked, and then they were going to, you know, pull back to, to Bamako, the capital of Mali. I mean, the commander of the force, if memory serves, is, is a Mauritanian now. There was a, a Malian general who was, who was sacked, basically, after okay. several setbacks and yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, uh, and the Sahel forces. This, uh, you know, these five countries have sort of put together this, um, you know, international, I guess, or supranational um, military force to try and cope with uh, extremist groups. Uh, it's its success has been mixed, I guess um, you could say. Uh, at the... most, at most. I mean, <laughs> I would say it's failed. I mean, um, is the issue? one of lack of resources is it coordination what what are the the challenges that that the Sahel forces faced yeah i mean a lot of different challenges i mean you know and it depends on who you talk to i mean i think that you know if, if you talk to you know french officials i think that they would probably put lack of resources you know high on the list i mean there was sort of an unusual moment late last year when when um the French minister of the army sort of publicly criticized Saudi Arabia, which had pledged something like, I don't know, in the neighborhood of 100 million euros to the force. And then France was saying that Saudi Arabia hadn't followed through. So France has definitely been concerned about you know, lack of resources for the G5 um, and specifically for the G5, you know, joint force, it's called. But I think I think the problems go deeper than that. I mean, for one thing, you know, these are I mean, these are vast vast countries and and the g5 joint force is supposed to be a thousand soldiers from each country which is really not you know uh, enough uh, 
the troop strength to really cover, I think, some of the territories involved. Then I think there's also the problem of, you know, uh, the, the Sahelian militaries being, in some cases, uh, drivers of, of, the, of the insecurity itself. I mean, particularly in, in Mali and Burkina, the militaries have been accused of, of substantial human rights violations against civilians, you know, and, and, and in particular of sort of ethnic profiling and, and you know, uh, use of informants in really problematic ways that, that end up, you know, again, either driving recruitment to jihadist groups or at the very least, you know, really, really sort of fraying the trust between civilians and soldiers. So whether or not those soldiers are, you know, sort of hatted as uh, operating for their national armies or whether they're hatted as G5, you know, those problems of, of mistrust, I think, can be just sort of uh, fatal to the prospects of any real stabilization of the, of the situation. So to get into to talking about Mauritania specifically, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to have you, because it, it occurred to me as I was reading your article that, uh, you know, this is a country that I, I don't really know that much about. Um, it's, it's in an important kind of active region of the world, but you don't hear very much about it uh, in the news. Um, but you, you know, you've, you have this, this very interesting piece about the, there's a, you know, a conflict between the current president and the, the former president who's sort of his mentor and we'll get into all of that. Um, but I wanted uh, to ask you to sort of walk us through, uh, the history of Martin and we don't have to go, you know, all the way back to whenever, I mean, sort of post-colonial, I guess, uh, history of Mauritania. It, it, it struck me as I was... Uh, doing, you know, some preparation for this interview to kind of get myself at least at least a little bit familiar with Mauritania, that uh, it seems like it, Mauritania went through a lot of processes that uh, the rest of kind of the Sahel and, and West Africa went through, but it went through them uh, later than some other countries. It was Islamized relatively late. Uh, it was col- wasn't colonized until really like the turn of the 20th century. Um, and then, you know, gained independence with the rest of the region in, in 1960 when French West Africa was, uh, you know, cut loose. Um, talk about, and, and the other thing, and I guess, you know, we should say this up front, it's also uh, one of the last countries in the world uh, to uh, make slavery illegal. Uh, and that, that, I guess, is a good place to start. Can you, can you talk about uh, the, the nature of slavery and the role that slavery has played uh, in Mauritania and the work that I think is still being done to kind of uh, eradicate it or, or at least, you know, uh, ferret out what's, you know, where this stuff is happening. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, the one place I would I would modify what you said, by the way, is, that, is I, I just on that dynamic of, of Islamization. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think Mauritanians have a strong sense of, of being you know, part of, of a sort of Islamic tradition that goes back to, you know, uh, very close to the time of, of the companions of, of the Prophet Muhammad, you know, or, or, okay. or at least goes back, you know, a, a millennium. So I think that sense of Islamic identity, maybe in some cases, you know, uh, more recent than in other cases, but I, I think they, you know, it's called the Islamic Republic of, of Mauritania. So I think there's, they, they, they do really pride themselves on that identity. Um, on the slavery issue, 
I think that um, I think there's a lot of layers to the to the question. I mean, you know, I think sometimes it gets described, slavery gets described as, as a Mauritanian phenomenon, but I think it's actually something of a regional phenomenon. Like, there's been actually, you know, a fair amount of um, studies of, of slavery in, you know, nearby Mali, um, you know, even talk of slavery into, you know, Niger and so forth. Um, so this is one sort of issue, I think, is it's, it's not just a Mauritanian phenomenon, but like sort of a, a Sahelian phenomenon. And then, of course, we could get into like, you know, the really complicated question of how to define slavery and, and you know, different forms of slavery around the world. Um, yeah, but for Mauritania, I mean, it's been, you know, uh, uh, a really, really kind of um, contentious social issue. I mean, the sort of, you know, basic way that's often given of breaking down, you know, Mauritanian societies that they're so-called, you know, whites or bidan. Uh, you know, white Moors, they're sometimes called so Arabic-speaking uh, populations that define themselves as white. Uh, then the Haratin, which are, you know, former slaves who uh, speak Arabic and define themselves or, or are defined by others as, as black. Uh, and then sort of what are called Afro-Mauritanian populations, which are groups, you know, who whose uh, native language is not Arabic or, or the Hassaniya, which is spoken in Mauritania. Um, so particularly, you know, concerning the role of the Haratin, there's been a tremendous amount of um, social tension, uh, a series of activist movements that have, um, you know, alleged, I, I think often quite credibly, that, that real, you know, hardcore slavery continues in parts of the country. Um, and there's been, you know, a, a lot of uh, contestation and, and a feeling that sort of a, a white you know, uh, Arabic-speaking elite has has monopolized, uh, you know, the centers of political and economic power in the country. And so that even where, you know, uh, slavery in the sense of real, you know, bondage and, and coercion has ended, um, that there still remain, you know, uh, profound inequalities in the society and, and profound forms of discrimination. One of the things I read, uh, again, as I was kind of prepping for this, is is that there was an influx right around the time um, Mauritania gained its independence, and, you know, it was not just Mauritania, the rest of the region as well. Uh, there was an influx of, of uh, sort of sub-Saharan African population that moved into the, the country, that there was already this kind of Arab-Berber uh, population there, but but right around the time when it it became independent, this new group or um, you know to some extent I guess new group moved in and and kind of uh, was more sedentary, more kind of ur- urban urban you know urbanized I guess uh, occupied the cities and and that's led to uh, tension between those groups. Is that is that uh, accurate? Does that sort of capture one of the dynamics? going on here or or uh, you know not so much was i led astray no definitely definitely i mean and, and I, I should add that i mean you know it's very contested even who counts as mauritanian and who counts as a foreigner um there were you know i mean there have been real tensions around this issue you know throughout history but um particularly in the 1980s and then culminating with with some violence on both sides of the of the mauritania senegal border um, in 1989, 
you know, and, and a, some of the heart of that was the question of who even counts as as Mauritanian, and some of the, you know, impacts of that continue uh, up to the present, including in the United States, by the way, where there's like, um, you know, Mauritanian, uh, you know, asylum seekers or, or people who used to have, um, you know, the formal status of asylum seekers, and then that's been, you know, stripped away, including very recently, um, and then face the potential of going back to a country where they wouldn't even be recognized as citizens. So, I mean, yeah, the sort of the issue of, of foreigners in the country and then who's even a foreigner in the first place can be can be really contentious. So take us through, uh, you know, Mauritania gains independence 1960, um, and there's a lengthy period of one-party rule that includes a, a point where uh, Mauritania basically went to war with Polisario, the, the Sahrawi group in, in Western Sahara, claimed part of Western Sahara, which is now, of course, claimed entirely by Morocco, um, and lost that war. I mean, you know, wound up kind of withdrawing its claims and, uh, you know, giving, giving that up. Um, but there's, a, there's this lengthy period of one-party rule that, that ends with uh, a, a military coup in 1978. So take, us, take us through some of the early uh, events in Mauritania's post-colonial history. Sure. Yeah. I mean, no, and that was a great, I mean, that was a great summary. I think that, you know, there was a, um, how to put it, there was sort of a, I mean, a style of leader who, who came to power in some of the former French colonies, maybe particularly in the Sahel and West Africa at independence. And I think that, you know, the first president, Mokhtar al-Tadav, fit that mold. I mean, French educated, um, Many of many of the um, initial post-colonial presidents actually had, you know, French wives. <laughs> sort of, I can't resist saying I, I have a friend in Mauritania who's this this old lawyer who lived through some of these events, and he he was making the case to the, to me one one time I was there that, that actually all of these French wives were were French intelligence agents, and I don't I don't <laughs> believe that, but I think that I mean it points to actually how in some countries there's a lot of sort of. Um, a feeling that those initial post-independence leaders were actually really under the thumb of, of France. Um, yeah, so he, you know, he he, uh, he came to power, you know, slightly before independence, and then and then ruled until 1978, as you said. Um, you know, there were already. I mean, just uh, to continue about the sort of racial tensions. I mean, there were already by the 1960s, you know, uh, real tensions over the country over over what language is going to be used. Um, you know, Arabic versus French. Um, I think there was already a sort of a negotiation over the place of Islam in the country because, you know, um, the, the post-independence government and, and I think even the French to some extent have felt like, you know, this idea of Mauritania as an Islamic republic was, was something that could unify the different peoples in the country. You know, it's, it's virtually 100% Muslim, so you know, despite kind of racial differences and linguistic and ethnic differences, that, that, that Islam could be a unifying factor. But even though it called itself the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, in some sense the, the state itself was not really that Islamic, like in terms of, you know, laws or, or priorities or values, um, wasn't really, you know, that, that Islamic. And so, you know, by the 1970s you got... Um, 
small Islamist movement starting to develop and starting to make critiques and saying, you know, why can't, why, why don't we have a more Islamic state in this supposedly Islamic country? Um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, as in other countries, I mean, the sort of one-party civilian state uh, became, you know, more and more brittle over time and then eventually fell in the face of a crisis. So, you know, Mauritania, um, you were mentioning that, that Mauritania sometimes followed the same trends as other countries just a little bit later, and I think that's true in this case. I mean, so you have a, you know, a coup in neighboring Mali in, in 1968 against the one-party, you know, state in that country. You have a coup, you know, coups in uh, Niger and Chad in the, in the mid-1970s, and then the coup in Mauritania in, in 1978, um, which then inaugurated a period of military rule that in some ways arguably, I mean, if one wants to be cynical, you know, has, has continued up to the present. So, okay, well, this was, this is, you know, obviously my next question then was the, the uh, what was the military period like? Uh, it lasted until 1991, but, but it, there was no, like, democratization. I mean, there seemed to be just a, a sort of shift to uh, single-party rule again by the military, basically. I mean, like, the military... Uh, you know, uh, Maui Ultaya, who had been the, the sort of coup leader, just kind of resigned from the military and made himself the civilian, quote-unquote, civilian political leader. Uh, and, you know, we, it continued in a sort of dictatorial uh, fashion. Was there, was there any real... I mean, can we talk about uh, a distinct kind of period of military rule and then a period of civilian rule? Or is it like undifferentiated from 1978 all the way to 2005 when when he was ousted in another coup. Yeah, I mean I think you know in a way the real sort of exception was was the period when you had in in just briefly in in 2007-2008 when you had a, a civilian president who had, who had never been, you know, a senior military officer. Aside from that from 1978 on it's either been you know, military officers ruling as military governments or, or you know, ruling as, as civilians, but I think still, you know, relying on, on the networks that they built as as military officers and keeping very firm control over the, the military. So, I mean, yeah, you had from from 1978 to 1984 sort of a, a series of figures, and then old Taya came in in 1984 and ruled until 2005. Um in you know the 90s like some of the other authoritarian regimes in in the region um you know mauritania and, and those other countries felt substantial pressures to democratize and so they had you know multi-party elections and and you know some liberalization of you know the, the sort of public space but still the military kept a firm grip on power or, or, or the taya kept a firm grip on power um, it's also worth mentioning that in the, in the 90s in particular, he became, and Mauritania became really internationally isolated. I mean, particularly the, the relationship with the U.S. got bad, um, partly because of the uh, human rights issues and, and, you know, a lot of attention to um, those border clashes or, or interethnic, you know, clashes that I mentioned along the Mauritania-Senegal border from 1989, and then also because Mauritania had, had you know, sided with, with Saddam Hussein, you know, at least rhetorically in, in the Gulf War. Um, and so that, um, you know, really put Mauritania on the, on the outs as far as Washington was concerned in the 90s. Uh, interestingly, interestingly then, um, Oldataya, to get 
back into Washington's good graces, um, opened diplomatic relations with Israel in 1999, and then when the war on terror came along, you know, presented himself as a sort of um, enthusiastic potential partner for Washington in the, you know, Sahel, Sahara, North Africa region, and and succeeded to some extent in, in really reestablishing, you know, ties with the U.S., but then from the perspective of his own inner circle, um, became, you know, more and more kind of uh, erratic and problematic. And so in 2005, uh, basically his inner circle overthrew him um, in a coup that was that was led by the, the current president of Mauritania, the immediate past president, and then one other figure. Um, and in particular, the current president and, and the past president have been, you know, dominant figures on the scene uh, ever since. So before we get into to that dynamic, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, some more kind of basic background stuff. Um, and, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you've brought up uh, the sort of clashes with uh, Senegal. Um, I had, I was curious whether there was any spillover into Mauritania from the Algerian Civil War. Uh, can you talk sort of in general, and, and of course there's the Western Sahara thing, which uh, Mauritania does, has given up its claim, but I wonder if there's still uh, tension with Morocco over that, or if there's any tension with Morocco over that. Talk about Mauritania's relationship to its neighbors, uh, and you know, is there what sort of, uh, if any, kind of tensions exist there? Yeah, I no thanks. I mean the the um I meant to say before actually that the I mean the tensions with Morocco have been have been really you know deep and and have have continued at points um you know including up through the present. I mean one one factor there is that you know certain Moroccan elites you know possibly even including the monarchy had had a conception of greater Morocco that would be far beyond the borders of, of what we think of as Morocco now, and that it would even include Mauritania. Um, if memory serves, Morocco didn't even recognize Mauritania until until 1969, so nine years after independence. Um, you know, and you can see maps of, you know, there was a key um, independence era leader in, in Morocco, Alalo Fassi. Um, I believe he drew, you know, maps that showed, you know, Mauritania as just being sort of a, a province of, of Morocco. Um, and that I think has has colored the relationship. That's very ambitious of them. I mean, that's that's nice. It's good to have goals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and and you know, and so sometimes Morocco has has hosted uh, you know Mauritanian exiles and dissidents. You know, including um, the past president had had really fallen out with a major businessman, and so he he went into sort of uh, exile in in Morocco. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's been real tensions there. The the relations with other I think North African countries have, have tended to be, you know, more positive, um, including with Algeria. And and t- t- what what about to the south? Like talking maybe uh, if we could talk a little more about kind of what fueled the the tensions with Senegal and how that you know how those things kind of. Uh, sit today like what what you know relations with um senegal and the other countries in sort of the west african coastal area uh how does mauritania you know sort of relate to them yeah so i think uh, i mean the immediate sort of uh, one kind of trigger for for that violence in the 80s was there had been at least the accusation that 
Mauritanian officers, or, or if we want to say black Mauritanian officers, have been plotting a coup. Um, there had been a famous, you know, manifesto by by Afro Mauritanians in the 1980s, um, and so tensions and 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 you know a number of, of officers were executed, and so tensions from that I think then escalated into you know regime tolerated or even regime backed you know uh, actions against you know Afro Mauritanians in, in southern Mauritania near the border with Senegal and then that you know there were sort of counter uh, I don't know even pogroms you could call them against Mauritanians in, in you know the capital of Senegal Dakar and, and elsewhere um, yeah and I think that that I mean I think that there has been really lasting, you know, impacts of that. I mean, Senegal and Mauritania cooperate, you know, the governments cooperate on all sorts of things on, you know, uh, maritime issues and, and energy issues and things like that. But, you know, at, at sort of a human level, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was when I was first in Senegal in, in 2006, 2007, you know, Senegalese friends would say things like, oh, Mauritanians are, are mean, you know, you can't, you can't trust them. I mean, so there seems to be a lot of, you know, bad blood even still. Um, sort of more broadly in West Africa, I mean, so Mauritania, Mauritania left the um, Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, which is a, um, you know, regional bloc. They left in 2000, but they, they um, continue to attend the meetings. Sometimes there's talk of them maybe even rejoining that regional bloc. Um, you know, they participate in, um, you know, things like the G5, obviously. Um, they've participated in some of the U.S.-led, you know, counterterrorism effort, and, and in fact, they participated in the key U.S.-led counterterrorism, you know, programs in, in Northwest Africa and West Africa. So, you know, sometimes they're they're really uh, involved in the region. Sometimes, though, they they hold themselves, I think, aloof. You know, particularly when they feel like they would have more to lose than to gain um, by by getting involved in regional situations. And the, the main example of that would be the crisis in Mali. You know, so. Um, before the crisis in Mali, Mauritania had actually, um, a couple times in, in 2010, 2011, had sent troops across the border hunting jihadists. But when the crisis really sort of touched off, and particularly when the French went in in 2013, Mauritania very deliberately did not participate. Um, so sometimes they can be a bit, I don't, know, I don't want to say isolationist, I think that's too strong, but, but sometimes they can be a bit aloof, I think. They do. I mean, it, it, the country does kind of sit, I guess, on the uh, on the f- line between, you know, really kind of North Africa, like Arab Berber North Africa and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So I guess they have the luxury in some respects, I guess, of like choosing where they are like geographically in terms of like on, from issue to issue. Like on this thing, we're actually in North Africa and we don't have to deal with your problems. But on this other thing, you know, maybe we're in West Africa. It's kind of, they get to maybe pick and choose a little bit. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. The, the two players in this uh, story that you told in your piece at World Politics Review are uh, the former president of Mauritania, Mohamed Ould Abdelaziz, uh, who was president in 2009 to 2019, uh, and Mohamed Ould Ghazwani, uh, who was just elected. Um, you know, Mohamed Ould Abdelaziz was term limited, and uh, Ghazwani, who was his, his sort of um, mentee, I guess, in a sense, or at least that's what he thought, uh, <laughs> was elected to, to succeed him last year. Talk. Let's talk first about 
uh, Muhammad Old Abdulaziz. Who was he? Who is he? Uh, how did he come to to be president of Mauritania? Uh, you know, give give us some background on him. Yeah. So I mean, he you know uh, came up through through the Mauritanian military. You know, from from the late nineteen seventies on, um, became uh, a key you know player. Um, under under was the Taya, the the dictator who was in power from 1984 to 2005, and then was the one of the key authors, if not the key author, of, of coups in 2005 and 2008. So in 2005, um, he and and Wazwani and and another officer who since died um, overthrew the Taya, set up a you know brief transitional government and then turned over power to an elected civilian. Um, there's a really good analysis in, in a book by Noel Foster um, who, who makes a very strong case that that process was basically sort of stage managed, you know, that, that the military, you know, set up the elections in a way that they felt, you know, would, would produce an outcome that they could live with. Um, but then pretty quickly that president and the military developed you know, and the, and the senior military officers developed real tensions. The the president, um, that civilian president, tried to fire them, including firing Abdulaziz and Mufaswani. Um, and then they staged a coup in 2008 against him. Um, and then Abdulaziz became first military head of state for for a little less than a year, and then and then uh, you know formally retired from the military and and ran for president and won. Um, I think, I mean, maybe one thing to say um, is, is I think that in, in contrast with other sort of military leaders or, or authoritarian leaders that um, uh, both Wolf Abdulaziz and Wolf Gazwani have, have shown a certain amount of restraint. Um, I mean, maybe the biggest example of that is just if you look at the percentages that they tend to win in elections, I mean, particularly when... Uh, Abdulaziz came in in, in 2009, and when Ghazwani won um, last summer, you know they, the, the percentages that they took were in the low 50s. You know, so and I'm not saying that the numbers are completely fake, but I think that um, I think that in contrast to other leaders, you know, they're they're not sort of uh, the types who would who would win an election and give an official count of 99 percent or something. Right. It's not, <laughs> Sort of yeah. brazen, right? It's right, right. It's like um, a little more realistic. Yeah, yeah. And within the realm of sort of, you know, uh, you know, to say, look, you know, I mean, the optics are kind of, look, you know, I won decisively, but but not in some crazy way. This figure is plausible, you know. So I think that they they have, on the whole, you know, uh, really known quite well what they're what they're doing. So, Old Abdulaziz uh, is in office 2009 to 2019. He's under a two-term limit. Um, instead of, as some other leaders in the region have done, or you know, in other parts of Africa even, instead of uh, sort of bucking the two-term limit, trying to either rewrite the Constitution or come up with some excuse why his first term didn't count and he gets to run again or you know any of the the techniques that you see you know used over and over again uh old abdulaziz decided to not stand for election uh, and actually abide by the uh the the two-term limit and instead he put forward his um you know partner slash kind of 
uh, you know, junior figure, uh, Muhammad Al-Ghazwani. Talk to, talk to us about uh, who he is. Give us a little background into, uh, into him. Sure. So, I mean, for one thing, I mean, I, I would advise you and your listeners to, to take my analysis with a grain of salt because I, I fully expected that, that Abdulaziz was going to go for a third term. I mean, you know, <laughs> sort of all the, all the signals were there. I mean, people, people, you know, were coming forward in, in, you know, 2018 and into 2019, you know, publicly urging him to run, um, you know, some of the senior religious leaders in the country, some of the key um, people within his own party, uh, you know, and, and it seemed to me that those people would not be making such forceful and public declarations if they didn't have his blessing to do so. And, sure. it, you know, it also seemed, you know, particularly after, um, you know, legislative elections in the country, um, I want to say in, in 2018, if memory serves right, you know, that he just had the, and, and a constitutional referendum, um, you know, that he, he just had the control of the key levers of power, it, that if he had wanted to, he could have um, changed the Constitution and, and, and run and, and won. And to um, be, but to be fair, right, to be fair to you, I'd uh, like... And we'll get into this in a minute here. I think, you know, there's there's an argument to be made that he saw, he could have seen, uh, you know, Ul Ghazwani's election as a sort of a third term, right? I mean, right. there's, right. so so we can get into that relationship in a in a minute, but I, you know, I think uh, may, may have been a case where he felt safe giving up the office at least for a term. Uh, and, you know, as it turns out, Maybe maybe he wasn't so safe to do that, but we'll get it, get into that dynamic in a minute. Just uh, yeah, talk to us about Ul Ghazwani and uh, what his his role has been uh, up to you know sort of being elected last year. Yeah, so I mean he you know he um, he has has often you know been described as sort of this this man in the shadows, you know, and maybe that sort of rhetoric goes too far, but, but you know, as a more sort of retiring personality, um, somebody who was there for all of the key events, you know, he and he and Abdelaziz met um, in, in military training in, in Morocco. I haven't been able to pin down the exact date, but either in the very late 70s or the very early 80s. Um, and then they came up together, you know, through the... Um, through the ranks of the Mauritanian military, they were both, you know, key figures under all the Taya. As I mentioned before, they they you know operated together to um, to, to to do the coups of 2005 and 2008. Um, Ghazwani was was you know basically head of the military, you know, chief of chief of the, the army staff during um, you know Abdelaziz's presidency. Um, in 2012, there was this really strange incident that, that has never been fully clarified to my mind, where where a soldier shot Abdulaziz at a at a checkpoint. Um, it didn't kill him, obviously, but but wounded him seriously enough that he went to France for for you know some extended treatment and and left you know Ghazwani in charge. Didn't leave you know the prime minister or something in charge, but but left you know Ghazwani in charge, which a lot of people have taken as as you know real indication of the sort of level of trust and, and cooperation between the two men. Um, they come from different, you know, tribes. I mean, Abdulaziz comes from, I believe he's, I think if memory serves, he's actually born in Senegal, but I think, he, you know, in terms of family background, comes from, you know, sort of uh, north of the country. Ghazwani uh, comes from the east and comes from a different tribe. Um, so, you know, and one sort of a 
analysis that that you know I've explored. I don't think this explains everything, but maybe a part of it is you know there were a lot of accusations uh, or sort of grumbling during Abdulaziz's tenure that sort of um, he and his tribe, you know, the Awlad Busfa had had monopolized you know some of the key appointments and contracts and things. Um, it's possible that you know toward the end of Abdulaziz's time that people around him started saying, hey, you know, it's time to sort of uh, let a different sort of network of people come into power and have have their share of the cake. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, and I think there, I mean, there must have been, particularly in this time when when Abdulaziz seemed to be publicly wavering over a third term, there must have been a lot of, you know, uh, discussions in in rooms, you know, with closed doors, uh, you know, that, that that I'm not privy to, obviously. Right, and and I think you know, as you discuss in your piece, like the the there may have been a feeling that either you know, uh, Mohammed Abdulaziz thought he could pull uh, the Putin basically, you know, and turn over yeah. the presidency to uh, his his kind of deputy for a, a term, and then come back and run again because the the term limit is really. Uh, technically, I think consecutive term limits. It doesn't. It's not like a lifetime limit. Um, or you know, at, at at worst, I guess, or at least he could sort of be the power behind the uh, the presidency and kind of run the country from the shadows. Uh, but that hasn't worked out. And this is sort of the the main thrust of your piece. Talk talk about uh, you know how that's played out. And and as you said, as you you wrote, and uh, you know has been talked about. Uh, it, it, really, this was the first peaceful transition of power from one head of state to another since Mauritania gained independence. Um, I guess the first question, actually, even before we get into sort of the dynamic between these two, um, you know, is that how momentous is that really given how close these guys are and how or were uh, and, and, you know, how much it seems like this was an arranged transition? Uh, you know, but you know, so is that is that really as kind of monumental as it sounds, or is there you know sort of uh, you know it is a peaceful transition, but how much of a transition is it really? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean, you have that earlier transition from from the sort of caretaker military government that came in in 2005 to, to the civilian president in 2007 then you have this transition I think this transition is, is a bigger deal um, because it's it was sort of more transparent but then I think you know both were sort of stage managed by by incumbents to to produce the outcomes that they wanted or at least that they thought they wanted um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think you know. Uh, I mean, elsewhere in the region, you know, like I mean, the the, the you know in Senegal in 2000, um, Abdoulaye Wad, who had been the longtime opposition candidate, you know, defeated the the the, the, the basically you know, I think 19 year incumbent in in a free and you know in, a, in an election that was counted mostly free and fair, you know, and ended 40 years of socialist party dominance. Like that that's in a much different category, I think, than what happened in Mauritania. I mean, this is you know, uh, the same, you know, key figures, this is the same party, um, despite the tension between them, I think it's, it's between these two men, I think it's basically still the same sort of system and outlook and perspective on how to run the country. So in a deeper sense, I don't think it's much of a transition at all, despite the sort of personal animosity. Maybe I'm wrong on that count too, and maybe there's sort of policy 
policy changes that will come. Um, I think, I mean, one other thing maybe to mention on that is that, um, you know, Abdelaziz or people around him may have also calculated that had he run for a third term that it would have just been too explosive and that, that the pushback in, in the street um, could have been too much. I mean, I mentioned before sort of winning elections by, you know, 53% or whatever is a sign of sophistication. I think it's also maybe a sign of caution, right? Um, a sort of a, an acknowledgement that there is substantial opposition to, to both of these men in the country. Um, you know, and even Ghazwani, uh, even his election and, and the announcement of the results was greeted with with major protests, you know, that, that resulted in a, you know, internet blackout, a, a crackdown of, of honestly uncertain size because, you know, sort of neutral observers haven't been able to fully assess how widespread the crackdown was. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think it, I mean, maybe in that sense, you could also say that the transition is a really big deal because there is an alternative timeline where one could imagine that Abdelaziz had run for a third term, that, that the backlash could have been, you know, much stronger and, and that that could have been destabilizing for the country. I mean, in other cases in the region, you know, where where rulers have gone for that third term, it's, it's often been really, really bad. Um, you know, in, in, that happened in Niger in, in 2009, 2010, and almost immediately precipitated a military coup. So, um, you know, in a, in a sense, that's the meaning of the transition, is maybe avoiding a, a worse scenario. So, and the transition, though, I mean, as much as it was managed, um, seems not to be working out to uh, in the way that perhaps... Uh, Abdulaziz thought it would. Uh, Mohammed Al Ghazwani has not been the uh, sort of uh, puppet on the throne. I guess he hasn't. Uh, he he really seems to have his own uh, agenda, and he's pursuing it. Um, and and that's brought already. I mean, you know, he just took office in August, but already there uh, the relationship between these two guys who have been working together uh, for so long. Uh, is breaking down, and this is what you kind of covered in your piece. Talk, you know, talk us through uh, in broad strokes without, you know, giving all the details away, but talk about what uh, what's been happening. Yeah, so I mean, I think it I think it started off, you know, quite well, at least from Abdelaziz's perspective. I mean, however, maybe he really wanted that third term. I mean, I think I think he may well have, and and you know, but if if he you know, accepted this outcome of, of Ghazwani coming in to replace him. I mean, he seems to have wanted to basically to have control over, over personnel and, and, you know, was able to pick some of the key campaign staff, um, you know, appeared really enthusiastic during the campaign, uh, and then did, you know, what I think is sort of the natural move of, of leaving the country for several months after the election, you know, and, and creating the optic of, of, you know, distance and, and independence and so forth, and then independence for, for Razwani, I mean, um, you know, and, and, and starting off as sort of, I don't know, maybe in that statesman role for himself. But then coming back to the country in November, then he, he pretty much immediately precipitated pretty severe, you know, problems, um, wanting to, you know, uh, sort of keep his own people in, you know, charge of, of the military and particularly in charge of the of the party, the the Union for the Republic or, or UPR, uh, and that 
basically, and how public he was about that almost immediately created, you know, a set of sort of um, public uh, snubs and, and ruptures. And, and I think, you know, put Kazwani in a position where he felt like he had to, you know, make up a, a public show of, of independence and that he wasn't just a puppet, you know. And so um, at, the, at the party congress in, in uh, December of last year when they were choosing, you know, who was, who was going to be the new slate of leadership for the party, it ended up being Ghazwani's slate that, um, that won. And so Abdelaziz wasn't able to put his people in. He had wanted to hold the congress later. Um, so he just sort of publicly took a couple of, you know, black eyes on various things and, and now then the question is sort of where it goes from here. Um, you know, the, the really sort of uh, explosive move would be if um, they started going after, if the, if the current government started going after Abdelaziz and his past government over, you know, corruption or, or things like that. Um, so, yeah, big question about how far this will go. That, and that was, yeah, that was sort of going to be my, my next question is, you know, is there, do you, what do you think is more likely that, that things get continue to kind of, uh, get heated between these two, or that there's some kind of reconciliation, if not a personal reconciliation, then at least a political one. Uh, does does this clash between the two of them open any room for the opposition to uh, operate, or you know, is that still closed off? What are some of the implications potentially uh, of uh, of this power struggle? Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh... Uh, another analyst who, who I really respect, and I, I won't I won't give their name because they were making the case to me to me privately, but they, they were they were really making the case to me that this that this could escalate, you know, into into corruption allegations. And I, I don't I don't know where that would go, honestly. I mean, that's really again, you know, maybe, maybe nobody should listen to me about Mauritania because that's not what I would expect, you know. So um, I guess I always tend to expect people to at least in Mauritania, to sort of try to, the, the elites to work things out, because it would seem that they would have every incentive to, to cool things off. And, you know, particularly if Abdelaziz, I mean, Abdelaziz, I think his reading of the Constitution is, is debatable, right, that, that there can be this sort of non-consecutive term. But if he really does have that aspiration to, 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 to pursue that interpretation and to come back, then it would seem to me he has a lot to lose by um, by feuding with, with Aswani in this in this public way um yeah in terms of the opposition i mean that's a great question i think that you know it, it does create opportunities for them i mean you know they so far have been the ones who've been really vocal about this um this need for a, a corruption investigation um yeah and i think i mean one thing this is all showing is that even though you know uh, i mean a year ago two years ago one would have said uh, Ghazwani is part of Abdelaziz's network, right? Now it seems that they definitely have been able to, to you know, that Ghazwani has his own network of people, right, who he can put into into positions in the military and in the party and in government and so forth. Um, obviously, you know, the more things uh, rupture, maybe the more that, that either Ghazwani or, or Abdelaziz would, would sort of reach out to the opposition. And I should say the opposition, you know, and the opposition has many different faces, but has a long history of like moving in and out of government um so they're not sort of opposition all the way down to their to their bones regionally um you know i think um you know to to go back to something i said toward the beginning of this interview 
Um, you know, Mauritania is not a country that in the U.S. that you hear very much about. It doesn't get a lot of news coverage. Um, I, I view it, I viewed it, you know, as, as I was thinking, you know, I should have you on to talk about this and sort of, uh, you know, try to bring people a little bit up to speed. Um, it it kind of like Chad. I mean, Chad is another country that you don't hear very much about, um, but it's it's involved in all these stories that you do hear a lot about. Like there are Chadian uh, rebels in you know southwestern Libya that are contributing to conflict there. Uh, Chad, you know, there's a, a role that Chad played and, and continues to play, I guess, in, you know, any unrest in uh, Darfur and Sudan. Uh, you know, Islamic State, the original Islamic State West Africa province, the Boko Haram uh, splinter group, uh, operates basically, you know, kind of in the border region between Chad and Nigeria at this point. Uh, so it's involved in all these things, but but you you hear, you don't hear very much about it anyway and I, I wonder you know regionally uh, what is the the what are the things that people should be aware of I guess about Mauritania Mauritania and its its regional role and and what a, a political destabilization might mean for you know sort of other kind of issues happening in uh, in the Sahel or in West Africa yeah I mean I think I mean one one you know question that that uh, you know that, that I've given a, a fair amount of thought to, and, and that, that others think about a lot as well too, is, is, is why and how the country has been able to largely avoid, you know, the jihadist attacks that have that have uh, so you know afflicted Mali and, and now Burkina and Niger, um, because Mauritania had a phase from from 2005 until 2011 or so when it was really uh, a target for for the group. Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, or, or AQIM, um, and then since 2011, it's, it's been, you know, really fairly quiet, um, and so there's been a lot of, um, you know, speculation about why that is, right? Um, at the most sort of conspiratorial, there's there's the question of whether uh, the Mauritanian government and AQIM sort of inked a deal. There was a document found in um, Bin Laden's compound that, that um seem to indicate a sort of a draft agreement where Mauritania would pay, you know, uh, 10 to 20 million euros uh, free um, imprisoned AQIM members and then be, be left alone. Um, it doesn't seem, you know, if they ever reached any kind of deal like that, it doesn't seem it was that precise deal because, um, you know, all of the prisoners, all of sort of the hardcore prisoners remain uh, in prison. Um, but you know, one doesn't have to go sort of all the way to that point of view. There's also been, I think, the more plausible sort of suggestion that Mauritania and AQIM have kind of a non-aggression pact, um, that when Mauritania decided not to go into Mali with the French and so forth in 2013, that um, AQIM, you know, kind of took that as, okay, well, we'll, we're really now going to focus on these countries that have intervened and not focus on, on Mauritania so much. Um, so yeah, one question. I mean, and I've even, you know, I was I was in Burkina Faso last summer, and somebody asked, you know, somebody brought up, you know, oh, we need to sort of um, adopt some of the elements of the Mauritanian model here in Burkina. Another thing I should say about about Mauritania is that they had um, dialogues between sort of uh, state-aligned clerics and. Uh, 
within jihadists, and, and they did release some of the people who, who had not been accused of sort of direct violence, but who, who had seemed to have, you know, very hardline views. They ended up releasing dozens of those people, and, and there's been very little recidivism. Um, so, you know, some other countries in the region have felt like uh, maybe there's some, you know, there's a page that, that they could take from that, that book. Um, but on the other hand, there's also been, you know, questions about if there is some sort of Mauritanian model that, that helps to reduce jihadism there, how long it can last. Um, if Mauritania is involved in the G5 and so forth, will that eventually, you know, put them back in AQIM's, you know, sites? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, other sort of regional trends, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's still unlikely, and again, maybe I'm too, too uh, naive on this, but, but I think, I mean, Abdelaziz in some sense has like a weak hand, Right. I mean, the advantage is, even though he's the immediate past president, even though he was an extremely powerful person, you know, up through uh, six months ago, I think that, you know, being the ex-president is, is a weaker hand. Azwani has shown that he does have control of the military, of the, of the party, of the government. Um, the advantages of incumbency are so strong. I think that, to me, it seems unlikely that there would be any sort of real, you know, upheaval in the country in, in the short term. Um, so yeah, I mean, in a sense, it remains like a, a. I think it benefits a lot from from the lack of attention to it, you know, and I think that actually facilitates some of the sort of quiet authoritarianism there. And I think that, you know, Paris and then Washington, to the extent that, that Washington thinks about Mauritania at all, they're 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 comfortable with the people in charge there. I also wonder. I mean, I, there's apparently. Uh... Something else I learned as I was preparing for this interview is apparently the recently discovered very large offshore gas field along the uh, maritime border with Senegal that, uh, you know, if it's exploited could, you know, bring a lot of wealth in. I wonder if Mauritania's profile will increase uh, if that kind of comes to fruition and there's more money flowing uh, through the place, uh, which could be good in some sense or could be very bad actually it doesn't those kinds of things don't always work out very well for the uh the people yeah yeah no i mean and and i think um you know the energy sector isn't something that that i follow super closely i mean i know that there's been like disappointments in the past with with some you know with with offshore you know oil and and gas and so forth um but I think that there, you know, more recently, as you say, there's been there's been uh, what should we say excitement, I guess, in, in the in the energy industry about Mauritania, and yeah, I think the impacts could be really mixed. I mean, already you see a lot of you know inequality, stark inequality in the country. I mean, you know, just being in in Nouakchott, in the capital. I mean, you see you know new construction. Um, which, you know, at least the, the friends that I have have often made the case to me that the new construction is largely linked with, you know, uh, government-adjacent companies and so forth and, and, you know, ends up benefiting um, this relatively narrow coterie of people. And then, on, on you know, alongside that, you, you see, you know, it's not as poor as, as Mali or as Niger or Chad, um, but you still see severe, severe poverty sort of right alongside, you know, some obvious money. To bring us back, I guess, full circle uh, to the, what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, the G5 meeting in France with uh, Emmanuel Macron, 
Uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, was that right after independence in the 1960s, kind of across the former French West Africa, uh, there was a sense, conspiratorially speaking, uh, that a lot of the rulers who you know uh, took power once those countries gained independence were still kind of enthralled to France. They were still kind of in the colonial uh, control, I guess, of Paris. I I, I wonder, uh, you can kind of take us out on this note, um, is that the kind of thing that could be revived by the optics of a, a, a meeting where all these you know current heads of state are you know, basically, like we said at the beginning, summoned uh, to appear before President Macron uh, and account for themselves? Do you think there could be a sort of revival, not just in Mauritania, but across the region of, of sentiments like, uh, you know, all these guys are, are uh, just doing French bidding and, and they're sort of back in the pocket of the, the French government? Yeah, I think I think a lot of, you know, ordinary Sahelian citizens feel that way. Um you know, and, and I mean, one one doesn't have to be, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I would say, you know, it's just sort of a fact that a lot of these leaders, you know, maybe more people like like Keita in in Mali and and you know Makisal in Senegal and uh, you know Kabore in in, uh, in Burkina, you know, that, that they're francophone, not just in the sense that they're that they're fluent in French, but but they're francophone in in you know, a deeper sense, I mean, often often educated in France, you know, often having spent a lot of time there, um, oriented toward France in certain ways. Sometimes you see, you know, um, if leaders are going to take a vacation or, or with ex-leaders when they leave power, they'll go and, you know, live in France, spend a lot of time in France. I mean, so yeah, it's, it wasn't just that, that crop of independence leaders. I mean, I think that, you know, the a lot of the leaders in the region are, yeah, they're, they're deeply francophone in a way. All right. Uh, Alex Thurston, again, the piece is uh, Presidential Rift Sours Mauritania's Political Transition. Uh, it's in World Politics Review. I'll put a link to that in the show description. Uh, anything else you want to tell people uh, about? Anything, anything else to plug? Uh, yeah, so I have I have a book about jihadism in the region that I, that I hope is going to be out um, sometime in the fall of 2020. Um, I think I think the, the the working title is uh, jihadism in North Africa and the Sahel. Excellent. Well, we'll uh, hopefully if you're not uh, inundated with, <laughs> with interview requests, uh, uh, you can come back on and tell us about that when uh, when the book comes out. Anytime, um, Alex. Thanks for being here, and uh, you know, hope to have you back soon. Take care. Thanks a lot for having me. You too. Okay, uh, once again, I want to thanks, uh, thank Alex Thurston for coming on the program, and as he does every time he's here, uh, enlightening us uh, about what's happening in the Sahel region. Uh, and that piece, again, is a Presidential Rift Sours Mauritania's Political Transition. It's at World Politics Review. I will post a link in the show description. Uh, thanks again to Alex, and uh, as uh, always, thanks to you for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care.